Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Susan Wells, author of the new nonfiction book, An Assassin in Utopia, the true story of a 19th century sex cult and a president's murder. Chris Connolly, an ABC News correspondent and ESPN reporter, wrote about the book, Juggling Incels and Libertines, The Mighty and the Mightily Deranged, Susan Wells definitely brings us this close to an amazing cast of real-life 19th century characters, admirable and horrific, brilliant and doomed, messianic and utterly mad, making them and their vivid emotions newly relatable to our era. You'll be casting an assassin in utopia in your head, even as it demonstrates that free love is anything but, and that one man can make a difference often in the worst way possible. This is like David McCullough on acid. <laughs> Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. <laughs> That's a great quote, by the way. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I'm wondering if, if someone hasn't heard about your book yet, An Assassin in U Utopia, can you explain the story that you researched and wrote about here? Sure. Well, it's the first book to trace the links between a utopian free love community in upstate New York and the 1881 assassination of President Garfield, because the assassin had been a member of that community for six years. But beyond that, it also traces some crazy, surprising connections between a lot of eccentric and famous people like Horace Greeley and P.T. Barnum. They were all sort of connected to the story and the time. And it also explores the cultural trends that run through the 19th century, um, from utopias to patronage-dealing politicians, spiritual mediums, visionaries, hoaxers, and hucksters like P.T. Barnum. How did you first learn about the Oneida community? I first learned about it when I was a graduate student in history. I read about the Oneida community, and my jaw was literally hitting the floor, <laughs> at least in my mind, <laughs> because I couldn't believe what they were doing in Victorian America from the 1840s until the 18, until around 1880. It just kind of blew my mind. And because I'm a writer, I had it in the back of my mind that I always wanted to write about the Oneida community, but I didn't want to write an academic book, and there have been some very fine books written about it. I thought that if I could find a crime committed by somebody in the Oneida community, I would have a story. I would have a human interest way into it. The problem was I couldn't find a crime because despite their exotic practices, the Oneida community was, they were considered the pillars of their community. They were entirely upright. They provided a lot of employment for their neighbors. They were very, very prosperous. And nobody did anything wrong that I could detect. So literally, as a, as a last-ditch effort, in 2009, the, the New York Times had recently put their archives online. And I thought there was a minuscule chance that if a crime had been committed in upstate New York, the New York Times would have reported on it. So I literally typed into the search bar, Oneida Community Crime, and I got an avalanche of hits. I mean, so many that I couldn't even focus on them. And when I finally <laughs> was able to start reading, it was a presidential assassination. And at 
that moment, I realized I had a book and I had a huge amount of work in front of me because obviously it was a much bigger crime than I ever expected to find. You you kind of laughed and kind of alluded to it um, uh, just a moment ago, your surprise at what you discovered when you first heard about the Oneida community. But for someone listening, can you tell us a little bit about their practices and beliefs? And I want to frame this by reminding people who are listening that we're talking about the early 1800s here, which is kind of mind-blowing. But can you tell us a little bit about kind of what they believed and what they practiced in their community? Sure. They were founded in 1848, and it was within a religious context. The founder of it, a man named John Humphrey Noyes, described the Oneida community as a miniature model of of the kingdom of heaven on earth. But he had a very strange idea of what was going on in the kingdom of heaven. He believed in group marriage. Um, Lovemaking in the Oneida community was the highest form of worship, and it was performed according to his regulations. Uh, And it was, he considered it a refined skill that would take its place among the fine arts, ranking above music, painting, and sculpture. It was a very interesting uh, phenomenon, especially during Victorian America. But I have to say that this was a time following the, the Revolutionary War when institutions and traditions were shattered. And so charismatic leaders filled the void with all kinds of experimental social structures. And the Oneida community was one of about at least 70 uh, utopian communities that sprung up during that era, like mushrooms. The only thing I can really kind of compare it to would be the 1960s, when, again, it was a time of, of real social ferment. And there were a lot of experimental social communities that arose. And if I'm not mistaken, and maybe you could put this in context, and and I maybe should have um, researched before before asking this, but aren't we talking about um, the same area and the same time period when um, the founder of Mormonism um, wasn't that originally um, started in upstate New York around sometime around this time? You're right that Mormonism was founded in upstate New York, Joseph Smith, but that was in the 1820s. So okay. this was a little bit later. But it's it. but you're exactly right that there was so much of this experimentation going on in upstate New York that it was later referred to as the burned over district. I mean, it was just full of stuff, including the Shakers and you know, all, all kinds of experiments. So the Oneida community you know, was right in line with that. But what really set it apart is that it was the most successful utopian community in American history. With all of its strangeness, it lasted for more than 30 years. Because you talked about uh, looking at uh, the the archives at the New York Times and, and periodicals and primary sources of the day, Given what we know about kind of the religious fervor in in the U.S.'s founding, um, especially for the, you know, this time period of like the mid-1800s, what was the reaction at the time to the Oneida community and their beliefs about sex and, and relationships? Well, that was one of the very surprising things. Because this was such a time of social ferment, and there were so many of these experiments going on. In fact, 
uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said that every thinking man has a plan for a new community in his pocket. I mean, that's how common this was. It was the age of the individual. Horace Greeley, the famous newspaper editor, said, a man can do as he pleases and create his own world. And so this was very much the the spirit of the times. It was an age of singularity. And when the Oneida community arose, they didn't hide what they did. In fact, they published newspapers and annual reports describing in detail <laughs> what, what their philosophy and, and practices were. And they attracted a lot of people who wanted to join them. And That's some really very good. famous people um, became advocates for them because it was a, just a time of experimentation. And I think this is something that we forget about American history. We really don't learn about the, the decades before the Civil War. We don't realize that it was this time of kind of magical experimentation and all kinds of all kinds of very unique ideas. We've That's forgotten it. about it. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. <sighs> visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. That's interesting. Well, um, obviously, you know, your book, as, as we talked about in the title and, and, and earlier in this interview, um, that there is this connection between the Oneida community and later the assassination of President Garfield. Um, and I, and I'll, I'll probably get his name wrong. Did Charles Julius and Guto? Guto. Guto. Did he ever explain his motivation for assassinating President Garfield? He certainly did. He 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 wrote a lot about it, uh, but first I'll talk about his connection with the Oneida community. Yes, uh, his father actually grew up in upstate New York, and knew about John Humphrey Noyes and the Oneida community, and was a devotee. And even after he moved his family to the Midwest, he always had it in the back of his mind that he wanted to to join it. 
He never did. But in 1860, his son, Charles Julius Coteau, was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and pursuing studies and failing miserably at them. So he started corresponding with the Oneida community, uh, asking for admission. And after a long correspondence, they finally agreed to let him in. But it's soon became very clear that he was an oddball. He was excitable with a quick temper. He would mutter and gesture mysteriously when he was angry. He hated to work. And the women in the Oneida community did not like him. In fact, uh, they started calling him Get Out instead of Gitto. So he had a, a difficult road there. But he had such a maniacally inflated ego that he believed that he should take over for John Humphrey Noyes as head of the community. And he even believed that he should become president of the United States. So it was clear that Gateau was demented, even when he was 19 and in his early 20s. By time he assassinated President Garfield in 1881, he had become even more delusional. And the connection between the Oneida community and the assassination of James Garfield, I discovered, really was because of this very famous newspaper man, Horace Greeley, who was sort of the, 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 news, the publishing icon of his time. If you can imagine, in the pre-Civil War years, really from 1830 to 1860, newspapers were there was a startup boom in the newspaper business. Newspapers were like the internet of the era. Mm -hmm. And sort of the, the thought leader, the Steve Jobs, was Horace Greeley, who had founded the New York Tribune in 1841. John Humphrey Noyes, the leader of the Oneida community, was obsessed with Horace Greeley and, and newspapers and wanted to create a daily the theocratic newspaper. Well, Charles Gateau, copying everything that John Humphrey Noyes did also got it in his mind that he wanted to follow in Horace Greeley's footsteps. And he actually even applied for a job with Horace Greeley, did not get it because he had no skills whatsoever. But in 1872, Horace Greeley ran for president. And Charles Gateau decided that if he wrote a speech for Horace Greeley and campaigned for him, when Horace Greeley won, which he believed he inevitably would, and he went to the White House, he would be so indebted to Charles Gateau that he would give him, a, give him an appointment as a foreign minister to a, another country, basically an ambassador. Right. It was completely delusional. But he wrote the speech, and he was actually allowed to give it at a few outdoor rallies in 1872. Well, Horace Greeley lost the election in a truly horrible way, which I describe in the book. But it, that was the template for his connection to James Garfield, because when Garfield ran for president in 1880, Charles Gateau had the same idea. He rewrote his speech for Horace Greeley as, this, as a campaign speech for James Garfield, and he actually gave it on some important occasions with the full expectation that when Garfield won and went to the White House, he would appoint Gateau as minister to Paris. Well, he didn't do that. Uh, and I would say that Gateau's disappointment was one of the reasons why he assassinated James Garfield, but it was not the only reason. There were other political pressures on him and other delusional reasons why he did it. 
Sure. And can you remind those who are listening who who may not um, remember from from their history books? Uh, can you tell us about the assassination? Yeah, the assassination happened in 1881 uh, in uh, on July 2nd. Well, actually, that wasn't the assassination. That was the shooting because right. Garfield lingered on for another 10 weeks after the shooting. What happened was Gateau had been stalking Garfield for weeks, following him wherever he went after, at, 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 when he left the White House. He even had it in his mind that he was going to shoot him in church. He ended up not doing that, but he, the newspapers would publish the president's schedule, where he was going, and he was leaving town on a much-needed month-long vacation on July 2nd, and Gateau waited in the train station, and when Garfield walked through, Gateau shot him two times. And interestingly, it wasn't the bullets that killed Garfield. It was the infection caused by the dirty hands of the doctors who attended him, who kept searching for the bullet and couldn't find it. Wow. So what is the research process for you for a book such as An Assassin in Utopia? It was very long. <laughs> I could say that. I, uh, it took me more than 12 years to research and write this book. And one of the reasons is that I kept finding these astonishing connections between very, very interesting people who we, we know their names, but we really don't know much about them. But they were all kind of connected to this story. And so I wanted to just almost present this as a, as a, as an assassination story, but also a, a lens into the time, because it was such an interesting time in American history. It was sort of the the offbeat underside of the American story. That's what I wanted to tell. Anyway, I kept finding it was like a cabinet of curiosity. I would follow, <laughs> I would pull one thread and it would take me into something unbelievable. And then I pull another thread and they would be connected. And they all connected to either Gateau, to Garfield, to Greeley, or to the assassination, or to Oneida. It was kind of remarkable. So um, I wrote this book for my own enjoyment. And it's just absolutely delightful that it's finding an audience. Have you started thinking about a topic for your next book? Well, I have. Uh, I don't <laughs> know that I'm ready to talk about it. Sure, but sure. it's another collection of really interesting, intersecting people. You know, um, the late, great David McCullough said that history is about human beings. And it really is. It's not about dates and events. It's about the connections between human beings and their foibles and their passions and their talents and their failures, and how those things, interacting with other people, create the events that change and shape human history. So that's what I like to write about. And I've perhaps found another story that may be worth telling. What writing advice would you offer for those who might want to write a compelling historical nonfiction book? I would follow David McCullough's advice that history is human. It's about human beings. So find the story about the individuals who are making history and their very human motivations 
for their decisions, because that's really the part of history that people connect to. And I think if you can find that and not just talk about the events themselves, you will have the potential to really pull in your readers and make them care. What books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, I would have to say um, I love David McCullough's um, Mornings on Horseback. I think that's a fantastic book. Um, Of course, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. (laughs) I loved Candace Millard's book, um, the uh, uh, on Teddy Roosevelt. All of them are very, very human stories of events that we know less about than we might think. And uh, they they just pull you into the time. It's like time traveling, but also into the the emotional experience of the protagonists. And it's all true. A lot of the, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, which is why I love writing history. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your book? I have a website, susanwellsauthor.com, and that's Wells with one L. Uh, you can also find me on Amazon. You can find me in many bookstores. And I really hope everybody um, who reads the book enjoys it. That's wonderful. Well, again, we've been speaking to Susan Wells, author of the new nonfiction book, An Assassin in Utopia, The True Story of a 19th Century Sex Cult and a President's Murder. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And Susan, thanks for doing this interview. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.